Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Where we grow up determines a lot about who we are. But for many people in the U.S., geography determines all too much, from the quality of education to the types of work opportunities available. Every family should be able to live in a neighborhood that supports its well-being and helps its children succeed. But the neighborhoods where many low-income families live, especially low-income families of color, suffer from disinvestment and distress. But does geography really have to be destiny? How do communities become so segregated with wide disparities in access to opportunity? And what can we do to better support upward mobility in all communities? March Turner, Senior Vice President for Program Planning and Management at the Urban Institute, and Solomon Green, a Senior Fellow, have conducted many years of research on this topic. I sat down with both of them to understand the status quo and how we can change it. In the U.S., I think we have this foundational story about what it takes to achieve the American dream. And it's that with enough hard work, anybody from anywhere can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and have basically an equal chance to become successful. What does the research say about that idea? Is that a myth or a reality? Well, I think one aspect that that narrative misses is that where we live really profoundly affects our life outcomes. And I think this is actually kind of common sense. I mean, most parents, when they're thinking about where they want to live, where they want to bring their kids up, they're thinking they want to bring their kids up in a nice, safe neighborhood with great schools and healthy places to play where the role models and peers will all be positive because they think that where you grow up makes a big difference to your life chances. But in neighborhoods that have really high levels of crime, where there are not any jobs, there are no safe places to play, the schools aren't any good, parents in those neighborhoods have a really tough time earning a living, providing safety and security for their kids, and really enabling their kids to get the great education they need as a foundation for life. Say a little more about how damaging it is to grow up in a distressed neighborhood. There's been research on this topic, really very rigorous research over decades that confirms that other things being equal, uh, growing up in a distressed neighborhood uh, undermines a kid's life chances. But there have been a few really recent studies that have highlighted those findings and, and brought them to broader attention. And one set of studies came from Raj Chetty, who's shown that every year of living in a more opportunity rich community improves a child's chances of economic success as an adult. And just one example of that is that kids who had the chance to move from a high poverty neighborhood to a low poverty neighborhood as part of an experiment called Moving to Opportunity, as adults, those kids are now earning 31% more than the control group. In that environment and the ecology of opportunity can have huge impact on how kids in the next generation is able to do. We really start a lot of our work with a very basic but still place-based premise, which is we think every family deserves an opportunity to live in a neighborhood 
that supports its well-being and boosts its children's chances to thrive and succeed. And unfortunately, we're not there. Today, neighborhoods where many low-income families live, and especially families of color, suffer from disinvestment and distress that measurably harm their residents. And correspondingly, many low-income families, especially families of color, are excluded from neighborhoods that offer opportunities for their residents. And so how do we get here? You're, you're painting a picture... And I think most of us who grew up in, in cities in America, we see neighborhoods and areas that are really successful and really well off. And you see areas that are more struggling and more distressed. How do we get to this place in which you have this divide and indifference and opportunity? So actually, lots of people look around them, see those differences and think that they're inevitable, think that they're natural. They come out of people's choices. They come out of the way markets work. But that is really not the case. In fact, over many decades, the United States, through public policy and private institutional practices, built um, separate and unequal neighborhoods and, frankly, built separate and unequal neighborhoods on purpose. You know, as we look back over our history, there are examples where some cities explicitly used their zoning ordinances to keep white and black people in separate neighborhoods from each other. We know that banks redlined, essentially denying mortgage loans to people who wanted to buy in mixed or minority neighborhoods or who wanted to buy in a neighborhood where their race was not the majority. There were racially restrictive covenants, so essentially a private sector contractual mechanism preventing African-Americans and other groups from owning, uh, leasing, buying land in some communities, and real estate and rental agents actively discriminated, essentially refusing to show or inform home seekers, both renters and buyers, about homes in neighborhoods where they weren't the majority race. We really built this over many, many decades. And although a lot of those practices are no longer legal, that some of them still linger on. But the bigger problem is their consequences linger on. You don't snap your fingers, um, say we're all race neutral now, and see a transformation in the neighborhoods we built, the kind of amenities they have, the kind of services they get from the public sector. Those decisions last a long time. What does the landscape of opportunity look like today in the U.S., and how pervasive are some of these inequalities? We have seen slow and gradual decline in racial segregation in many metros across the U.S., maybe not as much as you would expect in light of the uh, changes in our laws that have happened over the past 50 or 60 years. But this slow and and halting decline in residential segregation actually masks some pretty significant changes that affect the landscape of opportunity. And I want to talk about three of them. The first is that the quality of the neighborhoods in which black and white families live today remain starkly different even after controlling for income. And some of these statistics really belie this myth that that where we live is just where we can afford to live, that that we soared into better and worse neighborhoods simply because we make more or less money. White families today are much more likely to live in neighborhoods with high-quality schools, affordable daycare options, parks, playgrounds, and reliable transportation options, 
Strikingly, the typical middle-income Black family lives in a neighborhood with lower incomes than the typical lower-income white family. And just to give that some some numbers, the average Black family earning more than $100,000 a year annually still lives in a neighborhood comparable to that of a white family earning less than $30,000. So the quality of the neighborhoods are actually growing further and further apart. The second is that economic segregation is actually on the rise, even as racial segregation declines. There are multiple ways of measuring this. You can look at the segregation and concentration of poverty. You can look at the segregation of affluence. And you can look at how segregated is the middle. But by all of these measures, American cities are growing far more segregated and are more segregated today than they were in 1970. So, for example, in 1970, less than 9% of families lived in poor neighborhoods and less than 7% lived in affluent neighborhoods. By 2012, those figures had more than doubled to almost 19 and 15% respectively. Over a third of families lived in either poor or wealthy neighborhoods, as opposed to just one in seven in 1970. And these conditions have only gotten worse since the Great Recession. The third trend that is really transforming the landscape of opportunity is gentrification, that we're seeing increasing pressures in neighborhoods that have perhaps been historically disinvested, but are now increasing in economic opportunity and desirability, that in those neighborhoods, longstanding residents have been forced out due to affordability pressures. All this adds up to a pretty clear story. While the geography of opportunity in the U.S. is hardly static and changes over time, most signs point to widening disparities across neighborhoods. As Americans, the neighborhoods we live in today are literally worlds apart in the opportunities they afford us. So this is a really distressing picture. And you're talking about real disparities of opportunity. You're talking about generations of kids and families that are not having access to the same kinds of opportunities that others are in, in our country. So that that idea this of, of really pursuing the American dream is going to be a, a real challenge. What do we envision as some of the ways to address these disparities of opportunity? So people have been working on this challenge for a long time. I mean, think back to the settlement houses of the late 19th century. Most of the experimentation and innovation and learning has really focused on what do you do to improve circumstances inside the neighborhood that's experiencing distress. And people talk about um, this kind of strategy mostly as a place-based strategy. A recent review that really looks pretty rigorously at the impacts of that kind of strategy over time finds that it can have some incremental benefits uh, for the neighborhood, for the people living in the neighborhood, but rarely have these place-based initiatives been transformative in the way that was, I think, kind of intended or envisioned. And was that surprising for the field to, to learn that? I think it's disappointing. The lesson from that review is, and it's a lesson that I think we really agree with, is that it takes more 
than investments inside the boundaries of the neighborhood to transform this legacy, essentially these patterns that we built over decades. And you have to work inside the neighborhood, yes, but you also have to tackle the larger systems, the larger policies that got us here and sustain these disparities. So we think about the importance of doing three things at the same time. One of them is to invest in the distressed neighborhood to restore essentially key uh, opportunities there. So that might mean something like uh, really focusing on safety in a neighborhood or on the public schools in the neighborhood. But it could also be about reestablishing the linkages between that neighborhood and opportunities that exist someplace else, maybe with a transportation kind of solution. The second approach is to preserve affordable housing options in neighborhoods that are experiencing revitalization, whether whether it's as uh, rapid as Solomon described with gentrification or if it's a slower process, but preservation so that people can stay. And the third is to empower low-income people and people of color to move if they want to, to neighborhoods that already have lots of opportunity that already support their kids' life chances. And people are actually doing all three of those things in different cities at different scales. We're essentially arguing for doing all three at the same time in a tailored way that tackles the bigger systems in a city or region. And why do you think it takes all three of those things? Why does it take that kind of package of strategies? Well, because across a region, all of those dynamics are playing out at once. It's rare to find a place that does not have neighborhoods that are suffering from disinvestment, that has doesn't have neighborhoods in which there are barriers to developing more multifamily housing that would be affordable to working families. It's rare to find any city that doesn't have some affordability pressures that are threatening to displace people from neighborhoods that are increasing in opportunity. So you you guys have taken a step back, really, and, and thought about this, not just thinking about neighborhood level, not even just thinking about it at, at a city level, thinking about it really at a regional level. Yeah, exactly. We think these are regional challenges that how people access opportunity can happen in a very local way, but it can also be influenced by whether or not you can move to an area that has greater opportunity or whether you can travel to that area and have access to it, as well as whether people are uh, uh, moving in to areas that need investment without displacing the people that live there. We call this a sort of a bi-directional emphasis that that we see uh, neighborhoods are not contained. They are not hermetically sealed. People people bring opportunity from other neighborhoods into neighborhoods and travel to where the opportunity exists. So we feel very strongly that a regional approach is necessary to uh, fundamentally move the dial on access to opportunity. Are there regions now that you see employing this broader set of strategies? Yeah, so there have been models, and some of them have been supported through federal efforts. Some of them are very bottoms up, and I'll give you an example of each. So uh, with support from the Sustainable Communities Initiative, which was a, a partnership between HUD, the Department of Transportation, and the Environmental Protection Agency, the Twin Cities of uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul 
engaged in a regional planning process that began in 2012, where they really took a hard look at what were the barriers, what we would call the fair housing barriers, what makes it hard for um, communities of color, low-income families, and uh, new immigrants and others to access housing in, in opportunity neighborhoods. And what they found through this process was uh, that racial segregation was actually growing in the region, contrary to national trends. And this was happening despite the fact that the region was becoming much more racially diverse, that poverty was spreading to the suburbs, and that people of color were facing very real barriers to housing choice. And it led their regional planning agency, the Metropolitan Council, to commit to using its resources, including investment in transportation uh, and infrastructure, to create more racially integrated and mixed income neighborhoods across the region. And for the first time in over 20 years, the council adopted new criteria on how it allocated transit resources to prioritize projects that improve the lives of low-income families, people of color, children, people with disabilities, and seniors. And it's already making a difference in the Twin Cities in terms of how resources are being allocated. So that's an example of where federal support really sparked a conversation on the ground. More recently, in Chicago, we have an instance where research actually contributed to thinking differently about segregation. The Metropolitan uh, Planning Council there used research that the Urban Institute led that quantified the costs of segregation on the region's prosperity to make the case that segregation was really hurting everyone in the region, resulting in lost income, lost lives, and lost opportunities. And so if you both had the ear of policymakers, what would be your top recommendations for what they should do to address this issue and and really think about increasing opportunity more broadly. So Marge and I have actually laid out a proposal uh, to go big in three metropolitan regions to test out whether this coordinated regional strategy that has this place-conscious focus can really reverse the 20th century legacy of, of segregation and disinvestment. It would involve substantial investment in building the capacity of local organizations, monitoring, using data to continuously monitor progress and learn from uh, work in these three areas. And we've identified some of the key building blocks of what this might look like. And I'll mention uh, two of them here, two that I think were ones that through a long journey of talking with many practitioners and advocates and policymakers consistently came up. The first is the importance of empowering residents as leaders and as participants in this process, that you can't be making uh, decisions without lifting up the voice and building solutions that resonate with those that are most impacted. You need to lift up the voice both of residents who live in areas of concentrated poverty, but also really engage residents of communities that may be contributing to exclusion. And to really build this sense of shared fate across a region is key. The second big point, and I can't emphasize this enough, is the need to explicitly and directly confront racism. These patterns that Marge talked about before that we see today of, of racial segregation and racially concentrated poverty were driven by policies, by policies that often had an explicit racist agenda. And the legacy of those policies live on today. 
And they often shape these narratives about who belong in communities and who deserves to to live in a neighborhood of opportunity that we need to confront directly. I also think the solution itself that we propose can go far in racial healing in this country. If we can narrow neighborhood disparities and where it makes sense to create more sustained and integrated neighborhoods, we can contribute to anti-racist narratives, creating more opportunities for people of all races to know each other as neighbors, which we think is going to be key. And to do that work, it it is no small task. It's going to take all hands on deck. What do you see as some of the roles of different actors? And I think local philanthropy, uh, nonprofits, also local government. How do you how do you see those roles coming together and and how they differentiate? That is a challenge because those different roles are all essential. Local government, but as Solomon said, not just in one jurisdiction. Every urban region consists of multiple jurisdictions. Their local governments are going to need to be at the table together. I think regional businesses and civic leaders at that table, as well as nonprofits and advocates. And here again, coming back to the idea that residents really have to have a seat at those tables and a voice, this is challenging work of creating those tables making sure everybody really does have the the knowledge and the opportunity to speak their mind and sustaining those conversations over time. That's hard work. I think there's also another partner in this work, which has had an erratic and irregular uh, role in supporting um, efforts on the ground or inhibiting those, and that's the federal government. So I think there's a role for the federal government to play to use its resources when it invests in communities, when it uses public dollars to support work on the ground, whatever those investments may be, whether it is in uh, infrastructure or housing, to make sure it's doing it in a way that really advances opportunity for everyone and starts to break down some of these uh, barriers. Over the years, um, HUD had uh, played a relatively hands-off role in how it used its housing and community development dollars. And recently um, had uh, given advice to communities, including data and guidance and an expectation that they would engage uh, with the communities. One of our recommendations to really lift up resident voice in developing these fair housing plans. Unfortunately, HUD has suspended uh, implementation of what was what was called the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Rule. But we need to continue to look for opportunities for the federal government to be a partner in this effort. And this is important because it matters not just for communities that are potentially being left behind, but for communities that are are, are do have some of these opportunities as well. This the status quo is hurting all of us. So changing it would be hard, but I think all of us would benefit. And the biggest benefits will take a long time to be realized, but I think we would begin to realize benefits in the near term as well. If we had fewer neighborhoods of disinvestment and distress, cities would be better off financially. Those uh, distressed neighborhoods cost cities a lot, and they return very little in the way of property values and property taxes. So there's a level at which cities would benefit. All our kids 
would have an opportunity to thrive. And that over time would really contribute to the prosperity of, of jurisdictions, of regions, of the country. Essentially, right now, we're cheating our economy of the potential of kids who are growing up in these distressed neighborhoods. And then I also um, share Solomon's view about the benefits to all of us of getting to know each other and letting go of the narratives about who deserves to be a part of what community. There's some uh, research from students who attend racially mixed, really diverse universities that shows that they don't just benefit academically, they also benefit socially. We get to greater tolerance, more fair-mindedness, more openness to working together, living together, and succeeding together in um, diverse settings. And we need that as a country. You have proposed also testing some of these strategies. What would that look like on the ground? And what does success look like if the strategies are themselves successful? We've actually suggested a couple of basic metrics that would define what success looks like. One is that over time, fewer neighborhoods in a region would be distressed and, you know, undermining of opportunity. So very simple, more neighborhoods would be high opportunity neighborhoods, fewer neighborhoods would be low opportunity neighborhoods. You know, there are all kinds of nitpicky issues about how exactly you would measure that, but it's a basic concept. But the other basic concept is that more low-income people and more people of color would be living in high-opportunity neighborhoods. Maybe the same neighborhood they lived in before, but now it's high-opportunity instead of low-opportunity. Maybe they would have moved. But more low-income people and people of color live in high-opportunity neighborhoods. Again, pretty basic to track. If you are making headway on those two big indicators you'd be moving in the right direction. You'd be dismantling the legacy of inequality that we built. So you can start there. You can use these measures to really track your progress. And then you can figure out what types of interventions, what types of strategies are going to work in your community and in your region to get you there. And we think that eases, we hope that eases some of the concern that we are saying this is all about neighborhood revitalization or this is all about deconcentrating poverty or this is all about stabilizing housing and gentrifying neighborhoods and we're somehow missing, you know, a huge part of the story. We recognize that all of those things are happening at once and think these measures can actually capture progress in addressing all of them. That they can help to anchor the work in a, in a very significant way, but allows for the kind of testing and, and customization that regions, metro areas are going to need in order to address their specific challenges. That's exactly right. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you need to know. One, despite changes in law and policy over the last 50 years, where people live still significantly determines what types of opportunities they have access to. Two, to change this legacy, we need to invest in neighborhoods and across regions to target structural issues like affordable housing and access to opportunity. And three, going forward, policymakers have to confront the racism that created these geographic disparities in opportunity. 
They have to rewrite old narratives about who deserves to live where to shape more equitable policies for the future. Thanks again to Marge Turner and Solomon Green. You can find out more about their work on the geography of opportunity and their proposal at www.mobilitypartnership.org. And if you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a few seconds to leave a review. Thanks to our editor, Riley Byrne, our producer, Yafon Powers, and to Vicki Gann and Katie Smith for all their help. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.